Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I would uh, uh, like to invite you back to uh, uh, Proverbs chapter 16. And uh, last week, we, uh, we kind of diverted out of Proverbs for our, our uh, walk back through history on uh, where you got your Bible from, and we talked about uh, that. And then um, the week before that is when we were in Proverbs chapter 16, uh, dealing with verse 26 through 28. Uh, and again, you know, uh, the great informative contrast between the foolish man uh, and the wise man. Uh, getting wisdom and understanding to unravel the confusion of life. And uh, we learned some really good practical things last time we were together. I kind of put it in a, uh, one of those little memory capsule things that they, every, every principal I gave, there were nine that I wanted you to remember, and I made them all work $10 million apiece. And, and uh, so and walk out of here with $90 million of spiritual truth in your pocket. And uh, it, was a, it was a good, fun lesson, and I enjoyed it. But just to recap, because these kind of all tie together, so I always want to kind of show them up so we stay consistent. You remember that we looked at verse 26 where it says that uh, he that laboreth, laboreth for himself. And... Um, you know, we realize that uh, getting God's wisdom and understanding is really the key to unraveling the confusion of life. And let's face it, life can be very confusing uh, many times. And we were, learned some really great principles from it. 20, verse 26, last time we were together, said, The labor a man does is, about, uh, is all about what he wants. It's his labor. And this is why things don't work out for him the way that they should. Verse 26 says he has an appetite. We talked about uh, the appetite uh, to want to devour. He wants to, uh, he wa- the things of this world. Uh, it all becomes about him or her. You know, it goes either way with these. Uh, verse 27, you remember, talked about that he digs up strife with other people and causes issues uh, with his actions, he or she. I mean, it, like, it goes both ways. Verse 28 talked about the person being a froward person. We talked about the word froward being a good key word here. Uh, froward simply meaning instead of going forward, you go froward, you go backwards, the word from. And uh, it's a, it simply means against the right way of things uh, because he or she has uh, to alter it to get really what they, what they want out of it. Verse 28, you'll remember, uh, basically says uh, what the person does, uh, they do uh, in secret. Uh, behind closed doors. Uh, They don't do it open uh, behind the body, through the body of Christ. It's always behind uh, in a secret way. You know, the ministry, one of the greatest verses in the ministry, or I should say probably two of the greatest two verses in the ministry, um, is out in the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 4. And the book of 2 Corinthians is really our handbook for ministry. It really gives us the insight into what we uh, all need to do. And uh, it says in in those uh, two verses, it says, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor uh, walking in uh, craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, uh, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You know, one of the keys... Uh, of, of pastoring a church. One of the bottom line things that you have to have is the openness and the transparency uh, that everybody can see 
what's going on and everything is before you. Bible says that in a church, in a pastorate, or in the ministry, you have to renounce the hidden thing. There can't be anything hidden. Everything has to be open and above board. There's no walking in craftiness. Uh, there's, there's no handling the word of God deceitfully. And, and that means a lot of things today. That means that some people don't even have a Bible, or that means that some people do have a Bible, but as we've been talking about, they just pick and choose out of it what they want. But he says that the real, the ministry is, is the manifestation of God's truth uh, to every man's conscience. And when you preach the word of God, you're preaching uh, to a person's conscience. And the Holy Spirit of God will take that word and, and, and convict that person or do in that person's conscience what they do. Bible talks about there's a, people can get to the place where they sear their conscience. They get to the place where the word of God just bounces off of them like BB shot off a brick wall. But in its, in its truest form, uh, when you manifest the truth of God, it goes to a man or a woman's conscience. And that's where God does the work. Bible says in the book of Romans that God has uh, put the word of God on the tables of our heart. So God just takes that and the word of God, and, and that's what he does when it's done uh, the right way. And, of course, he talks about honesty and openness and transparency. You know, it's a, it's a simple fact when it comes to ministry uh, or really life. Uh, it will uh, it'll either be dishonest or it'll be honest. And it's either based on the Word of God and its principles, uh, or it's not. Uh, we also saw verse 27. We looked at that, where, uh, where it says, uh, He will lie and to use gossip to foster and further uh, their own plan, making others look bad to make themselves look good. And you see this many, many times. You see this so many times over the years that it, it's just what people do. Uh, I call, I put all these things in little little compartments of teaching that I use. And I call this the Absalom at the gate syndrome. You know, when Absalom uh, wanted to be king, when his father was king, he wanted to circumvent it. And he, he met the people down at the gate and, and would ask their problems, you know, and they would, before they'd ever get to David. And then when they'd tell him his problems, he would look his eyes toward heaven and clap his hands and say, oh, if I were only king, I could solve your problem. And by doing that, he circumvented the system, went behind the closed door, behind the scene, and we know how Absalom turned out. There's also the, the syndrome of Jacob and Esau syndrome, and that's the understanding the art of a deception and how all that pulls together. Uh, he talked about in verse 26 also when they, when they want to do what they want over what God wants, they simply pretend that, uh, not to see the truth. I mean, they can look right at it. They can know the principles, but they'll say to themselves, you know what? I just don't see that. And they'll pretend that they don't see it. They'll, and that goes back to, like we talked about, taking and picking and choosing what you want out of the Bible. You know, it's an incredible phenomenon uh, used so many times by uh, so many ways today that you, you see all kinds of variations of it. Verse 28, we talked about, uh, and they, uh, what he ultimately does because of all the way that he does it and his own personal agenda, what he ultimately does is separate friends. And uh, through the strife of, of not doing what's right and certainly not being established through the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why our entire chapter will show you not only uh, really the world of business. Many of you who work in businesses in the secular world, you see this all the time. It's, all, it's very true in politics. I mean, you see it in politics all the time. Uh, 
somebody trying to get the edge over the other. But as we have saw the last couple of weeks talking about the Laodicean church, where it's based on the rights of the people, uh, we see it all the time in Christianity today. I've never known a time where the time that we live in probably more mirrors the time of the book of Judges. The book of Judges, to me, is one of the most fascinating books in the Bible. I think the book of Judges answers so many questions uh, of why uh, things are the way they are even today. And you know, when you read a book of the Bible, sometimes uh, one, one verse or one chapter maybe, but in many cases, as Judges here, one verse... You have to read the whole book to get the right understanding. You have to read the whole book in the light of one simple verse. And boy, that is so true. Book of Judges is a time where when you look at it and try to read it, man, you're asking yourself, none of this makes any sense. Man, no, nobody, nobody, is, nobody is doing anything. It, it, it makes any sense. It's just all backwards. And, and it just, it's just one problem after the other. And when you read the book of Judges, if you miss the last verse of the last chapter, then you really miss the whole concept. And in chapter 21 of verse 25, he sums it up. He simply says, you know what? There was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the Laodicean church. No final authority. No king. Bible says where the word of a king is, there's power. King James 1611 authorized version. Uh, where there, it's just where there, where there is no, uh, where no king in Israel, and every man was doing what's right in his own eyes. That's the church today. There's no final authority, and God's people are doing whatever they want to do and justifying it any way they want to justify it. Now, last week we saw in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 27, and I want to kind of give you a little comparison verse here. Uh, we gave you the verse there in that chapter, in verse 27, about the man going down with fire in his lips. And I talked about how that in years gone by, I've heard evangelists use that to preach against smoking. Not that you shouldn't preach against smoking, but I'm not sure that's the verse you want. But it's, it's clever. It's clever, you know. <laughs> but in reality... <clears throat> The companion passage on Proverbs chapter 16, verse 27, will be found in the book of James in the New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 18. He's talking in Proverbs about a man having a burning fire between his lips. And when you go over to James, James will be your definitive companion passage that explains that. Let me read it for you. It says, My brother... Be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bribe the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Behold, also the ships which, though they be so great, are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with the very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Now here it comes. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. See that thing? That's the burning fire in a man's lip back there in Proverbs. It's his tongue, what he says. The tongue is a fire, verse 6, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members. It defileth the whole body. It setteth uh, on fire the course of nature and is set on the fire of hell. 
For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. There, uh, therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessings and cursings, my brethren. These things ought not to be, uh, not uh, so to be. Does the fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt, water, and fresh. Who is wise and endureth with knowledge among you? Now there's, again, exactly what we've been talking about in Proverbs chapter 16. The key is to get God's wisdom and God's understanding. And he's saying here, this is, a, this is a mirrored passage of that thing back there in Proverbs 16, 27. He says, who among you has the wisdom of God and the understanding of God? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness and wisdom. But if you have bitter envies and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom uh, descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For there were enderings and strife. There is, there is confusion and evil work. You see, it's got to be open. It's got to be clear. It's got to be right there. It's got to be established. But the wisdom that is from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruit, without partiality, without hypocrisy. You see, it doesn't separate people because it's through the body and everybody recognizes it. And the fruit of righteousness is shown in peace of them that make peace. Now, within the text of James, you can now begin to see uh, the two ways laid out in Proverbs chapter 16. Two men, two ways, verse 13. One uses his tongue to uh, start strife, fire. The other one uses his tongue to the glory of God. Verse 5 says, Behold how great a matter a little fire you know what that's like? Right out in California, I think they always are going on in California, but out there in Utah and some of those places, they have incredible forest fires. There's hardly a week doesn't go by that you hear in the news about a fire out of control that's destroying 300,000, 400,000, 500,000 acres. They burn down homes. They, tear, they destroy people's lives. They just burn everything to the ground. And they can't get a handle on it. It's out of control. They get those big C-130s flying over doing that fire retardant to get crews go in there and, and try to put the fire out. But the fire gets out of control. You'll hear the report. It's 60% contained. That means 30. They say, well, you know, it's out of control. The wind is whipping up. Uh, we never had no rain. It's so dry. And you look at the magnitude of 100,000, 200,000, 300,000, 400,000 acres, all lost. But yet all of that got lost and started with just one small campfire. This one match that somebody threw over here. This one little fire that started a forest fire that destroyed everybody's lives. And you know, that's what the tongue does. That's what he's saying in Proverbs. It's like a fire. And what we do and what we say when it's dishonest usually winds up destroying more than just your own life. It's a great principle. It's a great principle. It's a great principle. 
Now, let's look at our text today. And let's, uh, let's begin to uh, come down through here and, and uh, look at some things. And we're going to read today Proverbs chapter 16, uh, verse 29 through uh, 33. It says, A violent man entices his neighbor and leadeth him into the way that is not good. He shutteth his eyes to diverse froward things, moving his lips, he bringeth evil to pass. You see, this is right in connection of our guy we just reviewed here from the last time. The hoary head is a crown of glory, if it be found in the way of righteousness. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer today. Zach, would you lead us in prayer? Heavenly Father, please take this time in your word and let our hearts be open to what Bob has to say to us. And I pray that it comes across clearly, Lord, so we can take this and do something with you for it. We just love you and thank you and pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, look at verse 29. Let's start with that and we're going to work our way down. There's some great practical things here. Uh, this is this is going to continue on at $10 million a piece, except you can add it up today. I did it last time. It says, a violent man entices his neighbor and leadeth him into the way that is not good. Now, here's one of the greatest truths found anywhere in the Word of God and in life. Uh, th- these verses will be some of the most practical material that you will ever see and experience every day of your life. If you're, if you're paying attention. Now, I said, it's an amazing phenomenon. It really is. And I've seen this all my life. People, people who want to sidestep the Bible and do their own thing are always looking for people that they can take with them. It's just the most incredible phenomenon you ever saw in your life. When a Christian begins to waver from God and the truth, he or she takes comfort and assurance in the fact that they're okay in what they're doing if he can convince somebody else to go along with them. I mean, that's just the way it is. Misery loves company. Birds of a feather flock together. You know how that thing goes. Uh, In things like that, I have what I call, if you want to fix something like that, you have to have what I call the brick wall concept. That whatever somebody does, tries to do, uh, tries to pull something that isn't right, that isn't the way that it should be, uh, in any church, with anybody, if the person has God's wisdom and God's understanding, you know what they hit when they try to do that? Give me the word. A brick wall. Yeah, it's the brick wall concept. It's like one time when I was a kid, I almost lost my eye. And I was pretty stupid, and I was down at a, at a dump shooting my twenty two rifle. And uh, there was an old junk car there. And I walked up to it. You know, I'm just a goofy kid. I'm probably 17, 16. I don't remember how old I was. Wasn't very, wasn't, wasn't very smart, however old I was. And uh, I wound up in the hospital that night and, and almost lost my eye. Because uh, there was an old, and I know right now, it was a 58 four-door Chevy. Probably worth a... $30,000 if you could find it today. But it was the hood was off, the engine was gone, or part of the engine was gone. Like an idiot. I had a 22 caliber bolt-action rifle. And like an idiot, standing from here to that pole, I just, for whatever reason, took a shot at the steel engine block. <laughs> now, if I'd have had a 223, it'd probably been a little different. <clears throat> that 22 came right back and hit me in the eye. I mean, straight back. And I, you know, it stung, you know, really bad. 
and I and I and I and I there was the the side mirror was still on it and I looked down there and I could see a big blood spot on my eye, white of my eye. I thought it was a hole. I thought it went through my eye. I I, I got in the car, ran home, went to the hospital. And what what had happened was that it didn't penetrate. He told me, he said, no, if it would have penetrated your eye, he wouldn't be seeing anything. But he says, you're lucky it didn't. And whatever, it didn't come straight back. It came at an angle and just bruised my eye. And I don't know if you know this or not, but he says that your eye is one of the fastest parts of your body that heals the quickest. So he said, you ought to put some eye drops in it. And, and I was obviously, I'm okay. Uh, but that was pretty stupid, you see. That was pretty stupid. It'll be the <coughs> it should be the same effect when somebody comes to you with a something outside the Word of God that isn't going to go anywhere. They had to hit a brick wall. It had to come right back and hit them in the face. You know, if you want to stop, if God's people really wanted to stop all the bickering and all the gossip and all the dissension that goes on in the church, instead of complaining about it, just stop it. Develop the brick wall concept that whatever you say to me is going to bounce right back and hit you because it ain't going to penetrate where I'm at with the thing. You know, and it says here, and a, and a key word here is the word entice. We enticement. Use entice here. You know, and, and, and we talk about being enticed. We talk about enticement. But the Bible, again, the definitive verse in the Bible on enticement is James chapter 1 verse 14. Where it says a man, a man is only enticed by the lust that's already in his heart. Or a woman. You know, the, the enticement only works when you already have the seed in your heart of, what, of lust of what you want to do. That's the only way you can be enticed. Yeah, you know, you see it all the time. Come on, man, we're going to have a good time. That's enticement. When you know that it's not the right thing to do. Come on, so-and-so is going to be there. It's okay. And you get that's enticement when you when you know that it's not going to be okay. Hey, I talked to so and so, and and uh, he said it was fine. Well, I don't care what so and so said about it. What does the Bible say about it? See, come on, man, we'll have a blast. Yeah, I, I've been through some of those blasts in time, and they are a blast, but not the kind of blast that you would think. Or, well, brother, I prayed about it, and God told me this is what I need to do. Enticement. Believe me when I say this. Enticement will always lead to entrapment. It's just that simple. And you don't have to pay extra for that. I'll just throw that in for you today. Enticement will always lead to entrapment. Now, in situations like this, we, we saw laid out last week in, in verse 28... Uh, a froward man show a strife and a whisper separated chief friends I mean that ever happened to you boy it has happened to me more than I, I can think of it many times in my life this is where you have God's wisdom and understanding you see how unbiblical somebody, something somebody is doing and simply won't let yourself get enticed by it you say wow that really takes courage. Wow, I wish I had that kind of courage. You know, you're missing the point. To do that, it really doesn't take courage. Though I think courage is probably in the mix somewhere. But even more than that, 
It goes back to what I said a couple of weeks ago. It goes back to you never loving anybody or anything more than you love the Word of God. And when you have that in your life and you can maintain that in your life, then enticement is never going to be an issue. Let me ask you a simple question. I love comparisons. Man comes to your house, knocks on your door. He claims that he's with the Census Bureau and he's taking census, census information. So you begin to talk with him and pretty quickly you, you start to suspect something. He, he, he asks for your social security number. Then he asks how many kids are in your family. You say, what's his census information? You say four. Then he says, what school do they go to? Do they ride the bus or do you take them to school? Oh, they ride the bus. Where's the drop-off point where you leave them in the morning? They get on the bus. Do you give that information to them? I mean, no matter what he says, no matter how much pressure he puts on you, of course you don't. You could lose everything you have. It could put your children in, in, in tremendous danger. You stand there realizing that you understand the Census Bureau and you understand that what he's asking you has absolutely nothing to do with the Census Bureau. So why would you allow somebody to entice you to do something that you know is not right and allow them to rob you of what God has for you at the judgment seat of Christ? It's it's the same thing. We're in the height season right now of the phony IRS call. How many have got a, a phony uh, thing from the IRS that says uh, uh, you usually get a text or, or a voicemail, and it, it's it, it's 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 scary. I mean, uh, you know how much millions and millions of dollars it was on the news here. They got like thirty million dollars a month for this thing. I mean, and and you get a voicemail on your phone through your cell phone, and it says, I'm agent so-and-so with the IRS. This is your last warning before we proceed with legal uh, our, our warrant is issued for your arrest, for your, for your IRS outstanding debt. Well, I mean, people just panic. First of all, the IRS, the very three words, Scares everybody. I mean, Freddy Krueger doesn't bother me, but IRS does. See, I can watch Alien 1, 2, and 3 and go home and sleep at night, but if I know the IRS is going to meet me in the morning, I'm not sleeping that night, you see? That's a scary thing, the IRS. I mean, they're like this big, ugly, grotesque thing that you have no power against. Whatever they say, that's what they're going to say. And, of course, they're scary to begin with. So, when you get that phone call, for just a minute, if you've got any sense at all, it puts panic in you. Because you really know it's not true, but then you're hoping that it isn't really true. What if it is true? Okay. I mean, you're saying it's a scam, but deep down inside, your gut's saying, yeah, but what if it's not a scam? This is the IRS. 
And after a few minutes, you remember Channel 9, Channel 5, Channel 4. You remember getting up there and walking all through it, and they say, look, the IRS doesn't contact you over the phone. They show up, they kick your door down, they throw you to the floor, they handcuff you, they shoot the dog, they take the food out of the cupboard, and then they go. But for a, just a split second of time, we're fearful. I was. I, I pretended like I wasn't. <laughs> I got an IRS scam. Well, I hope it was an IRS scam. <laughs> Now I, 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 I'm past it. I, I actually call him and play with him. I'm a different person. One time I was a drug dealer and I was complaining because I didn't pay taxes. So how could I owe any? And I got the name. I mean, and these guys are, I think they're in Pakistan somewhere. They, they don't know how to handle something like that. I don't think they've ever talked to, you know, I'll, say, I'll get on there and call them Holmes. <laughs> I don't think they know who Holmes is. I'm not sure who Holmes is. But I'll I, I talk the language, you know. And I'll, I'll, I'll get it. One time I was a, I was a undocumented immigrant. And these guys, they don't know how to handle that. And they're just. And I would ask him who they are, and he would say, "Well, I'm so and so, Asian so and so." And I would say, where are you located? And he'd say, we're in Washington, D.C. And I said, well, my phone says you're in Afghanistan. <laughs> I, I, you know, but the first couple of times, I hung up and, and, and I, just for a second. But here's how it worked. And it's the same way with the Bible. When you're in faced with something, it's going to entice you. For a moment, just like the IRS phone call scares me, for a split second, when you see it, hear it, somebody says something, or you're faced with an opportunity, for a split second, you may think it's a good deal. But the more I remember Channel 5, Channel 9, Channel 4, and I know that the IRS scam, it descends on me, and I know it's a scam, and it takes the fear. And the more you have an understanding of the biblical principles, when you're faced with something that is not right, that has the potential of destroying you, your family, or people around you, then you, you let the principles descend on you, and you come out of it very quickly knowing that isn't right. That ain't how the Bible works. That ain't how the IRS works. That ain't how God works. It, it's just that simple. It's just that simple. Always 100% of the time, it's just that way. Uh, they will, they will, God's people outside the Bible will always uh, lead you in a way that is not good. And the biblical principles of the Word of God is what, it, what saves you. Okay, look at verse 30. He shutteth his eyes to diverse forward things. Moving his lips, he bringeth forth evil. Now the context of verse 30 will be the man of verse 16 that we, uh, uh, the, of chapter 16 that we've talked about last, well, the whole time we've been in this chapter, who has a private secret agenda and will walk away from the clear truth of the Word of God, and then he will entice others to go with them, or her, doesn't matter, he can go either way. And then they'll dig up evil as a burning fire, James chapter 3, uh, within his lips, and make, here's the word, inflammatory remarks. You see that thing? Inflame something. Inflammatory. Set it on fire. 
with the fire on your lips about a person or a circumstance to gain the advantage and then through deceit and false accusations and slander uh, make, uh, make themselves look good and, and the real deal uh, when they're not. And the Bible says, moving of his lips, he bringeth evil to pass. Now, what has to happen? What has to happen in Christianity is that brick wall concept. It's never going to happen. I'm just telling you, in a perfect world, this is what has to happen. God's people who know the Bible, believe the Bible, need to take their stand for the truth of the Word of God. And that is not just between the people we don't like. That is sometimes it is the friends that you, you do like. You know, we, we all like to pretend we do. We, we, we do. I mean, we, we think we do. You know, we, we like to take a stand against the Democrats if you're a Republican. If you're a Democrat, you like to take your stand against the Republicans. You know, people don't like Obama, he, he, they take their stand against him. People don't like Clinton, they take their stand against them. People don't like George Bush, they take their stand against him. You know, people don't like abortion, they take their stand against that. People uh, put, their, put their views up on billboards all the time, you get to see them all the time. You know, uh, we think we stand for things as Christians, but we really don't. We wind up in most cases standing for the things that really don't matter and don't fix anything. Amen. That's what we do. Uh, we all like to pretend. I, I think if you really want to be a brick wall, I mean, you ought to, you really want to, and I'm not, I'm not much for somebody who has a situation where they, where they wear t-shirts that show, you know, their faith in Christ or God or whatever. That's, that's, that, you know, I, that's okay. I, I, I don't, that's not my style. I, I, I just, I, I just don't do that. But I'll tell you, if I was going to wear a T-shirt for Christianity, I'd get one that says big bold letters in the front, I allow, I allow no slander or gossip in my presence. Now, somebody knows what they got. I mean, you got a T-shirt that says, I love Jesus. You got a bumper sticker that says, honk if you love Jesus. I used to have one that says, tithe if you love Jesus. It's a lot better than honking. Now, that, that, would, that would get something. See, I promise you, you wore that to a party, you'd be standing in a corner all by yourself someplace. You really would. But you can wear one that, that talks about the Lord or Jesus or this or that, and everybody's cool with it. I mean, I'll tell you another one. Yeah, yeah you got to get a T-shirt that says, do right till the stars fall out. That's an old saying from Bob Jones Sr., You should have one that says, if you can't say something good about somebody, then don't say anything to me. But that would, do you see how many problems that would solve? There are people, there are Christians who just look for targets of acquisition that they can go talk to them about somebody. And, and, and you know, in the terrorist world, we have hard targets and soft targets. The terrorists are always going to pick soft targets because... They have a better chance of getting it done, not getting killed themselves, but they're going to blow themselves up. But they'll, they'll look for soft targets because they can do more damage with a soft target than a hard target. And it's a simple concept. The hard target is a brick wall. See? The soft target is people who they know that they can do a lot of damage with. And, and that's how it works. That's how it works. I have a t-shirt that says, talk to me about somebody and I'll take you to them so we can solve the issue. Amen. No, that'd have to be a big t-shirt. 
Or don't tell me your gossip unless you intend for me to solve it for you. Now see, those t-shirts, I guarantee you, will cost you some friends. Because now you've identified yourself, you're not a soft target anymore. You're a brick wall. And of course, there, there, there you are. Now, like I said, they'll cost you some friends, but frankly, you're better off without those kind of friends. Amen. Now that may separate them from being your friend, but I want to tell you something. If you don't shut your eyes to the diverse forward things, it may separate you from being, them being your friend, but that's a lot better than them separating you from your fellowship you have with God. Amen. Oh, I would think it would be. By using the wisdom and the learning and the understanding to keep those things out of your life. Now look at verse 31. The hoary head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. Now the word hoary is an old English word. It means white. And what he is, you find this, uh, you, know, you know, you find it. Now this verse here, let me just say this to you. It says, the hoary head is a crown of glory if uh, it be found uh, in the way of righteousness. Now this is called a conditional verse. And in the Bible you're going to find conditional verses. They're all got a, uh, an if in it. Or a but in it. You know, it, there's always, it's always two things. So I've known places in the Old Testament where the, a whole chapter is a conditional chapter. It'll run you up of what God is going to do for them if they do what's right. And then right in the middle of the break, and then he'll say, but if you don't do what's right, then this is what's going to happen. That's conditional, see? And you need to, you need to know where those, uh, those things in the Bible. At Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29, Proverbs 17, 6, Proverbs 9, 11, uh, Proverbs 10, 27, make it clear that the hoary head or a white head or gray-headed person is someone who has aged and matured and has wisdom. You know, in, 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 in uh, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 6, it says, children's children uh, are the glory to an old man. And that children's children is your grandchildren. And it, it, it shows that an old man who is old that has the third generation, he's certainly gray-headed. But the glory of his life, of his gray head, is his kids to the third generation that are serving God and by his side and doing everything that they, they need to do. And it shows what he's learned. It shows the wisdom he has. It's that little... Grasshopper concept. You used to see Kung Fu, got a guy around there that played it, that Oriental guy. Well, he wasn't Oriental, but he wandered through the West. And he just didn't have any weapons, and he'd get into some place, and he was so fast and so good. And they always showed you at the beginning the master that taught him. And it always started out with the master holding his hand open with a little thing in it, and the kid was to grab it. he closed his hand. Opened it up, it was still there. And he'd say, What? Yeah, little grasshopper. <laughs> he'd try to get it again. <coughs> oh no, little grasshopper. <laughs> and then, about the third or fourth time, the kid's, it, kid's getting older. And the old man there closes his hand, open it up, and it's gone. Grasshopper is ready to go. So he goes now to the West to be everything that he needs to be. My point is, <coughs> he, 
he didn't start out that way. He got with somebody who was a master of what he did, Kung Fu. Now, I've never been much on, on the martial arts. I, I, I love Chuck Norris. I, I, I was watching. Anybody see, everybody ever see the movie? Uh, uh, John, what was it? I, how, what was it? Expendables 2. Expendables 2? <laughs> I'll tell you, I like all those. But that one, I just, I watched it for the first time last night. I was laughing and having a great time, especially when they're in the town. And they got, they got Arnold, all the, all the good guy, bad guys are in it. You got, you got Arnold Schwarzenegger. You got the guy that uh, uh, played the, uh, um, the other martial arts guy, Von Dom or whatever his name is. And then you got, you got uh, Bruce Willis is in it. And then they're in this shootout in this town with all these people outnumbered. And uh, then suddenly they're all dead and somebody shot them all down. And right in the middle of the whole movie, you never thought, comes one guy walking down, it's Chuck Norris. <laughs> Every martial arts guy on the planet was in that. It was, it was incredible. It, it was just absolutely incredible. And, you know, that's a big thing. You had Bruce Lee, you know. You had, you know, uh, all those things. And I never, I never, I mean, I, I respect them and I think it's neat. But I was never one who thought, you know, Marshall, you know how long it takes to learn to be as good as those guys? And instead of Kung Fu, I always just thought Kerchink was a lot better. Say, what's Kerchink? That's the noise your 45 makes when you're lock and load around on it. <laughs> Little wapapa. <clears throat> the older a Christian gets, the more he or she should get God's wisdom and understanding. Now, this stands the reason. Uh, and in most cases, it's just the opposite. I would say, by the time a man hits 60 or so, he's pretty well defined himself in life. He's pretty well, what he is now is, is what he is. By his choices here on earth, you know, the things that he's done with God or the things that he's not done with God, his family, what his, the whole thing, his relationship with the Lord. By the time he's 60, he's defined himself. And, you know, and it's probably just me, because I think weird a lot of times. I see in Matthew chapter 17 at the Mount of Transfiguration, the Bible says that Christ's hair is white like wool. I see in Revelation chapter 1 verse 14 that another picture of the second coming, uh, that his hair is white as wool. This is why in England, up to this day, they don't know why they do it now, but uh, all through the era of the Philadelphian church age, when the King James Bible was predominantly the Bible in England and made such an impact on that nation, this is why in Parliament and in, certainly in the courts, all the judges wore white powdered wigs. Because it was symbolic of the fact that they were sitting on a, on a, on a, on a judgment in a courtroom and it represented someday that they were going to stand before the white-haired judge. And it was a representation of the, 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 the wisdom that they should have in making decisions based on the book that their country believed. You know, and, and I said, this is probably just me. But you know, I watch things in life. And as we in life get older and start to get white hair, instead of just letting that be a badge of honor as far as women too we're always trying to dye it back 
<laughs> that we don't look as mature, wise as we probably are. <laughs> That's just human nature. That's the vanity of human nature. Oh, a woman dies if she lets her hair just, not all women, but most women, they would just die if they didn't die. <clears throat> and because they want to, they, they want to look good. I get it. I, hey, I am not preaching about it at all. I'm just making my point. I don't even know what point I was trying to make anymore, but I'm just trying to make it. And guys do the same thing. Hey. Grecian Formula 44, just for men. How many guys have been in that bathroom looking in the mirror with that little sponge? Hey, I get it. I get it. But I want you to know, just because you have a gray head doesn't automatically make you wise. It's a conditional verse. It says, if, verse 31... You see, it's conditional. Only, it, it, only if it's found in the way of righteousness. You know, in our seven stages of spiritual growth that we talked about, somebody asked a couple of Thursday nights ago, and I walked you through and showed you the last two were the elders and the agent. I personally, I think the most invaluable people in any church, or at least should be, is the men and women with years of walking with God under their belt, faithfully having their family serve God with them, second and third generations. You know, the women. Bible talks about the older women taking the younger women. And it talks about the older men taking the younger men, being a mentor to them, guiding them. Unfortunately, in most churches, that's simply not true. You know, you're going to come, some of you will come to the veteran salute this next weekend. There's always a bunch of displays there of World War II memorabilia. The, this theme this year is the Gulf War. <clears throat> but there'll be all kinds of stuff there. <clears throat> I have a display there. I always do. <clears throat> Among us collectors, we, we look at, a true collector looks at things differently than just somebody who collects salt and pepper shakers or, you know, spoons or gold silk, whatever. <laughs> A real serious guy in my world who collects anything of historical value. He understands <clears throat> that he is only the custodian of a piece of history. He's holding in his hands something that somebody else most likely paid the price for. And he recognizes if he's a true collector... I get groupings all the time of guys and some of it has incredible detailed stuff in it of their life... Their letters. And, and I never, I, it's almost like I'm walking on sacred ground uh, with these guys as I open that stuff up. I'm very careful because I realize that I may have this, but this is history. And we all look at it that we're only, right now, custodians of it. And we will, at some day, pass that on. That will live on when we won't live on. And I've often thought about, yeah, when it comes to the collecting world and having a piece of history, we don't really own it. You know why that all the great artifacts of this country are in a place called the Smithsonian Institute? Because nobody owns those things. They're there where everybody can see them, 
but nobody can claim them because they don't belong to anybody. They belong to history. And things that belong to history can only be passed on for somebody else to be the caretaker of it. And I've often thought that's exactly the way it is with the truth of the Word of God. We are just custodians of the Word of God that God has given us. God gave you the book. Yeah, it's your book. But you're going to pass off the scene someday. And all you're going to do with the book that God gave you is pass it on to somebody else. we're, We're custodians of the truth of God. And this is why the Bible talks about you, the older women, taking the younger women, the older men, taking the younger men, mentoring them, letting them learn from their experiences in life. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen. The older men in most churches, they run meetings, they preside over budgets, they head up committees, they set up chairs, they walk around being in charge of something, but they're never investing anything in their lives to somebody else. And, and the reason, unfortunately, in most cases is because they haven't learned anything in life. They get their whole life ministering to inanimate objects. They're ministers of information, but they're not ministers of the Word of God, the custodians of the truth that God has given us. And they miss the whole concept of the Christian life, Christian maturity. You should be at your best in your Christian life around 60, 70, 80 years old. Most pastors, they hit 60, they want to retire. They think like they've done their bit, and now they're going to retire to the golf course, you know, and just move around a little bit and preach to their buddies to keep a little money coming in. But uh, they're done. They're not going to do anything. Truth of the matter is, they were done before they ever got done, really. They want to quit just when... They have what they've learned and are so invaluable to put it out to others. You know, as you get older in life, your your value is no longer what you're able to do. There will always be people, young guys. Bible talks about a young man's strength is his glory, but an old man's strength is his gray head. There will always be the young guys that have the strength to do what the older guys can't do anymore. It's a trade-off. And as you get older in life, you value, your value is not in what you do. You do what you can, but rather uh, what you've learned in life that made you and who you are that you can pass on to somebody else. We talked the other night about, and we've talked quite often about him, about Bob Jones Sr. Bob Jones Sr. was one of the great Methodist preachers of the 20th century. He certainly was a powerful impact in the Ruckman's life. They were friends all their lives. The old man died. I I never heard uh, Bob Jones preach. The only recordings you can really get from him anymore is when he was doing the chapel services down at Bob Jones University and they're so lame in that part of his life and because that place was so watered down it's not the real true Bob Jones Sr., but I, I, I look at men like that. You know, when Bob Jones Sr. got old, he just lived on the campus of Bob Jones University. They wanted him to just, his wife was dead. He lived there by himself. He's probably 70, 80 years old now. He'd gotten really senile. 
He preached the Word of God for probably 60 years. Word of God was ingrained in him. And when his mind was gone, and the age of way past what he could ever do, he was a senile old man. And they would find him walking around the campus with his little suitcase, with his coat, with his hat, and his Bible under his arm. And he would ask people to help him get to the train station because he had to preach. The Word of God was so ingrained in his life that when his mind was gone, he couldn't put two words together. He was living in the days where he had to get to the train station because he had to go preach. You know, I don't know how I'll end up in life. We never do. But I think there's some real merit and honor of walking around in a senile mind with your Bible under your arm, your hat in your hand, and your coat on, asking people to help you get to the train station. A life absolutely dedicated to the preaching of the Word of God and training Young men, the older we get in life, our value is not what we do, what we've learned. And to me, in the ministry, the most valuable people will never be the ones who never made any mistakes in life. Who never went through anything. But rather, the most valuable to me are the ones who made some real mistakes in life, but grew through them and got better because of it. You know, people today have a self-righteous tendency to, to look down on people who have made some mistakes in life. And yet I've never met a person that hasn't made some terrible mistakes in life. And yet when that same person have grown through them and can, and can learn through them, they're in a better position to help somebody else that may be going through the same thing. If, if, it's conditional, if they learn going through it. You know, I look at him in the Bible. Abraham wasn't much. He had all kinds of problems when he started out, didn't he? But he wound up being a friend of God. He learned. Jacob means schemer. But there came a time in his life when God changed his name to Israel and became the father of the 12 tribes. I look at David. A David, who, life, a man whose life is, is problems of many, many times with his family, with his own personal life and everything that he did. And yet God said, he's a man after my own heart. He learned some things. I think about Paul who persecuted God's people. And all of his life he had a burden for the very people. And I think it probably, here is a good thing to see if you can get there. God let Paul go through in his life the persecution of God's people. Bringing them in. Killing them. Doing terrible things for them for the cause of Christ. One of the most despicable things that he himself struggled with and had guilt over when you read the Bible. But I want to tell you something. And you need to see this. Sometimes God will allow us to go through some horrific things. So those same horrific things like Paul went through was the very same propulsion that drove him with the dedication he had for God's people. It was what he experienced and what he did that was wrong, that he learned from.
that propelled him to be everything and dedicated that the rest of his life he never looked back. It, it's just, do you learn from it? That's all. Do you learn from it? I, I think of John Mark. He goes on his first missionary trip, wants to go home with Mama. And next time they want to go, Paul says he ain't going. He ain't going at all. And the Bible says that there was such a contention over them that they split. And somebody said that's a terrible thing. Well, if you look at it from the human standpoint, it is. If you look at it from the Bible standpoint, sometimes God does things like that. God got two missionary trips instead of one. And then in time brought it back. And Paul, later on, when he saw John Mark grow up and do what he was supposed to do, he said, bring John with you. He's profitable to me to the ministry. And I'm telling you, in my life, the best people are not the ones who go through nothing. The best people are the ones who go through something and learn from it. And yet in the Bible, you have, you have the ones who, who didn't learn anything. You got Cain, who left the presence of the Lord, never comes back. You got Lot, who God got him out of Sodom, but the problem was getting Sodom out of Lot. You got Esau, who had every chance to have every blessing that he could have, and yet he turned on his brother. You got Ishmael, had the same chance. God wasn't holding those boys responsible for who their parents was. God gave those boys every chance. Those boys didn't want to do what was right. He told, he told Cain, what are you upset about? Well, I'm upset because you didn't accept my offering. Oh, is that all it is? Oh, I thought it was something bad. I'll tell you what, Cain, go get the right offering and I'll accept it. He wouldn't do it. The contrast is incredible. The wise man versus the foolish man. Then it says in verse 32, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. Now the verse is a companion verse to a verse that we've talked about many, many times. Proverbs 25, 28. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. We reference that verse all the time. And we know that the spirit there is emotions that somebody has. If they don't have a control over their emotions to the principles of God, they have no defenses. Now here's where you can see the real working of God's wisdom and understanding in our lives. Wisdom and understanding put things into a context so quickly that you don't do or say something stupid. I remember years ago when they started to develop some really neat stuff with cameras. They come out with an instant focus that you could, instead of turning the thing on the end, you just push the button and it, zip, it went right into focus. And I remember seeing those and I thought, boy, that is the neatest thing in the world. And I thought to myself, you know what? That's exactly what biblical principles do. When you look at something in life and it's blurry and you push the interest focus or the principles, it zip puts it right into focus for you. When I was in the army, they'd put us out in places where there wasn't any clean water there either. <laughs> and we'd drink water out of a swamp. And everything in the, in the swamp. But they wanted to get us ready. And so they gave us these sticks that, that 
you could get down in the dirtiest, filthiest water on and on and on, and you could put that stick in that swamp and drink the water out of it, and it would be okay. It's a psychological thing. I've drank water out of places where there was a dead body floating in it one time, and you and you you drink out of that thing, and you drink it, and you drink it, and you got to have water. They're designed in such a way that when you drink whatever is filthy coming up the straw, it's got a filtering system in it that filters out the bad and only lets the good in. You know, that's what the, exactly what the Word of God does for you. When you use the principle of the Word of God, it filters out the bad and only lets the good come in. And this is why the understanding and the wisdom of God is absolutely so vitally important. It's just that simple. The idea of a water purification into your life. And, and, you know, God's wisdom in any situation will allow you to see it from God's standpoint and not take it personal. It'll allow you to respond to it instead of react to it because you see it one way as it affects you, but when you see it through the principles, you see it how it affects others. And God's understanding and wisdom in your life and my life will enable you and me to deal with with whatever comes in our lives correctly after we see it. The key word in both verses, 1632 and 2528, would be one little word there, and it's the word rule. A ruler. A yardstick. 12 inches. Tape measure. The rule here in both of these verses will be a standard by which you measure something. And when somebody brings something to you, tries to entice you, tries to get you to do this, tries you to get that, if you don't have an absolute standard to measure what they're trying to give you by, remember, enticement will always lead to entrapment. I I love to listen to people talk. I don't say much in my mind I do. Somebody will say, well, you know, he's a really good guy. I'll say, compared to who? I mean, that's a relative term. He's a really good guy. What's your standard of measurement? Stalin? (laughs) Khrushchev? Well, I want you to know, he's done a really good job. Compared to who? Compared to what? It's all relative if you don't have a standard. Well, he's built a great church. Compared to who? Everything is relative unless you have a standard. And Bible principles are the principal rules of life. And life is filled with rules. You have the rules of law. You have the rules of life. You have the rules of the road. You drive on one side and they drive on the other. When you come up to a light, somebody gets the right direction before you get... It's rules to the road. In any sports you play, there's rules to the game. And there's rules in the Bible. And for a successful Christian life, you have to play by those rules. Because if you don't, you're going to get deceived and you're going to get messed up. 
you learn as you grow to add to your faith some rules of Christianity and life to follow. When you get in time wisdom and understanding, you learn how to use them and you learn how to apply them. In my Bible, I have a, a whole list of things, what I call the great threes. They're absolutely great devotions, little things that you want to give somebody, and they really can be good sermons if you want to put them into play. You have to do a little work on them, but they're great. But it's an amazing thing. I probably got 200 of them listed in my Bible over the years that I just, and I just draw them all the time. It's like the Bible. You know, the Bible has a doctrinal application, historical, and a historic, and a, and a inspirational application. It's like the Bible, which is written to the Jew, the Gentile, and the church. It's like man, he's got a body, soul, and spirit. It's like your life. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 says your life should be rooted in the Word of God, built up through the Word of God, and then established in the Word of God. See, those are three little things that you can just take and build on. You want a devotion material, these things are great. I mean, the Bible says in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, that the Word of God should be in your heart, in your mouth, and in your hand. Doesn't get any better than that. You deal with somebody's issues in their life, they're going to be either one of three things. They're going to be, they're going to be spiritual issues, they're going to be mental issues, they're going to be physical issues. When you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, He was a king, He was a priest, and He was a prophet. Listen, the Bible says that you're to have a sure word, you're going to have a sure work, and you'll get a sure reward. You can preach that. We call old past Baptist Church, Jeremiah 6.16. We're the old book, the old way, on the old path. You can preach that. And I've given you one that is my favorite. Faith, fact, and feeling. We have faith, but I don't have faith in my feelings. You have some people out there that have faith, they have feeling, they have no facts. You have some people who have facts and they have feelings, but they have no faith. You got to have faith, facts, and feelings. You got to have faith in the facts of the Word of God and let the facts of the Word of God dictate how you feel in your feelings. Faith, fact, feeling. It's just the way it works. And that's the ability to use the Word of God as a filtering system, as a focus platform to see things as they really are. You submit your emotions, your feelings to these rules and allow them to govern, to rule you. And without their rule, you have no defense against what comes your way. Severely emotional people are people who have no rule to govern their feelings. Now, the last verse here is found in verse 33, and it says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Now, the last thing he says is very profound, if we uh, could even ever grasp it. And it's right within the context of what we're looking at. Uh, he says, in life, basically what he's saying is this, In life for a Christian, uh, there are no accidents in our lives. Everything happens for a purpose and for a reason. Some tragedy doesn't befall you, some, and it may be of your doing. But God will take even the mistakes that we make because all things work together for good. The question is, did you learn through it? There's no things that just happen to chance with a Christian. Now, an unsaved man, a life for an unsaved man, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 19. I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men. 
that God might manifest them, that they might see that they are themselves are beasts. For, they that which, for that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them, as one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they all have one breath, uh, though that a man had no preeminence over a beast, always vanity. You know what he's saying? He says a man in his life that's unsaved, his life's a chance. God is not orchestrating anything in his life. Now, if somebody's praying for him to get saved, the Holy Spirit of God will work it that way. But when he's just on his own, he's, he's on his own. He's doing his own thing. And if he dies, it's all a matter of chance. Where in your life, in my life, even in the things that we do that are stupid, God's still got his hand in it and will bring us back and bring us where we need to be because he loves us. And then it's up to us to respond to that, learn from it, and then be better because of it, and then help somebody else that's struggling with it. It's just that simple. Our emotional behavior is just a sign that we are in control, and he's not. It says the whole disposing of a matter is not of chance. And he uses the example of somebody casting a lot, like rolling dice. You can roll dice all you want if you're in Las Vegas, save your loss, and I don't think God's going to bring it up snake, uh, with uh, sevens or you can win. A game of chance is simply a game of chance. And for an unsaved man, his life is a game of chance. But he's saying here, in closing, the whole disposing of a matter, whatever it may be, is not of chance. Like a lot cast into the lap. But rather, it happens that God is in charge. He takes control. Even when we fail, He builds us, wants to take us and give us what He wants through it to teach us something about life that in the end of our lives, when we're supposed to have the wisdom that we need, we can actually do something with it. When we apply the principles and get wisdom and understanding, those things keep our emotions in check. And the Bible in play in our life. Proverbs 16 has been a great practical chapter. Next week, we'll move into chapter 17. But you have got a lot of good stuff. Today, we're stuff here that everybody can use. The question is, will you use it?